0: There's a universe inside each of us. The Innerverse podcast is your portal to that infinite realm of ideas. I'm Chance Garten, and I'll be your host as we serve up inspirational sound waves from the brightest minds with the highest vibes. And we keep searching for the empowering perspectives we need to create our greatest masterpiece of all our lives. Welcome to the One Within All To Interverse, coming at you from a frigid winter's day. I'm your host, Chance, and I am delighted you're with us for another dose of enlightening informational entertainment. Now, we all know that there are a lot of things that set our modern era apart from ages past, but one of the most interesting is the incredibly vast amount of storytelling that humans are doing these days across a massive variety of mediums, both digital and physical. It seems that fiction is one of the first things that we go to for fun and relaxation, and humans have probably always been telling stories this way, but nowadays it seems the dial has been cranked up to 11 out of 10, with the staggering multitudes of magical narratives and supernatural tales that we create and tell. But as some like to say, there's nothing new under the sun, and even the most interesting imaginary individuals that we know and love, from Gandalf to Galahad, have their origins in ages long past, And looking into the ancient stories of our forerunners can give us a deeper understanding and increased entertainment value from the creations of our current culture. It's said that in every myth and legend is at least one grain of truth, and our guest today might just have a map to that truth needle in the folklore haystack when it comes to extracting the reality from fantasy and legend. Her name is Linda Radish, and she's a dedicated delver into the mysterious murky woods of mythology, and she's keeping the flame of folk wisdom lit with her interest in the strange ways of the elder races and the many varieties of supernatural species. When she's not crafting paper, candles, or soap from scratch, Linda is a gifted writer on various topics such as folklore, herb lore, and ancient religions some of her works include books like night of the witches and the old magic of christmas and the tome we'll be spending time on today is a super fun and fascinating read called the lore of old elf land secrets from the bronze age to middle earth i enjoyed this book from cover to cover and learned about bronze age europeans stories of elves dwarves and an entire glossary of magical beings And there were even detailed instructions for creating a variety of crafts in a way very similar to how our ancient ancestors might have done it. Some of the topics I hope to tackle with Linda today are her original books, the tales of J.R.R. Tolkien, the possible reality of Elvish peoples and where they might have gone if there really were small folk and alternative styles of humanoids, and what it means for modern people to be so inundated with fiction yet quite separated from our ancestral folklore. You can find all of Linda's books at her publisher's website, Llewellyn.com, which is linked in the show notes too. And while you're there, you can find the button to sign up for Interverse Plus and gain access to the extended version of this show for a meager $5 donation. And because I don't really agree with ads, that means the only source of support that Interverse gets is from the audience members like you. So check out Patreon.com forward slash Interverse to join the tribe and help support one of your favorite shows. And of course, all you beautiful subscribers out there have my endless and eternal gratitude for the help. So now it's time to begin this unexpected journey through the foggy trails of times long forgotten and enjoy the knowledge of our lovely guest, the luminous lore master of little folk and the eloquent exalter of the excellence of the elves, the one and only Linda Radish. Thanks so much for being here, Linda, and welcome to Interverse.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. That was a great introduction. That's, I think that's the best introduction I've ever had. Oh, great.
0: (laughs) I had some fun with it today. I've been looking forward to this one for quite a while. I got your book um, sometime, I think in the late in the fall. And so I've been finished with it for quite a while. And yeah, quite excited to dive into this very interesting topic. But why don't you introduce us to yourselves? Let us know who you are. And for those who haven't read it in your book, how did you get so fascinated with elves and supernatural creatures?
1: Well, let see, your, your introduction really did it, but in the book I talk about how reading or actually partially reading The Hobbit for the first time, I was a really poor reader as a child. I would start five books and not finish any of them, and my sister in the meantime would read rings around me. I was lucky enough to be reading The Hobbit for the first time in uh, northern Germany. We were visiting relatives um, like we used to do every other summer. And so I had this really cool landscape that, I, that was in the background while I was reading The Hobbit for the first time. And Northern Germany is a lot like the England that Tolkien was, was really writing about because that was his background. So I think that, that gave me a relationship with it. And also back home in New Jersey, our, our backyard backed up to the Great Swamp National Wildlife Refuge. So you'd walk out the back door downhill. Keep going, over or under the fallen beech tree that was lying in the woods, and to me, it was like elfland. There, it was it was a complete it was other another world.
0: Yeah, the, the uh, mounds are quite an interesting feature of basically all of North America, but also in. Europe as well. I mean, maybe all over the world, we see this type of construction from uh, ancient peoples. What's the story about the mound peoples of Europe? And what do the artifacts that have been found in these mounds tell us about these people?
1: Well, the mound, you have mounds, I think whenever you have an elite that wants to remind everybody that they are elite. And especially in an agricultural society where most of the land is devoted to grazing and crop raising, those mounds really stick out. A lot of them now that I've been to in in Northern Germany are covered in woodland, but there are still a lot sticking right out, you know, in the middle of a broccoli field or a cow pasture, and you still notice them even though they're pretty worn down now. Because they blend into the landscape, People outside of that area, outside of southern Scandinavia, don't really know about it. Everybody knows about the pyramids of Egypt. We know about the ziggurats in Sumer, but there was a, a thriving and very rich culture up in northern Europe. You know, around they had a brief golden age around 1200 BC, and we have we have bodies because they. Buried a lot of their dead in oak coffins, and that preserved some of the tissue—preserved hair, skin, and fingernails—but eat up the bones. Also, some were put straight in, and we have some bones. We have textiles, jewelry in bronze and gold. Some artifacts. Some things were imported from South Central, Southeast Central Europe, where they had more advanced arts and metallurgy because they were closer to to Greece and the Minoan culture and even Egypt. But there was not, like we think of, you know, the Alps as a complete barrier that, you know, the North was totally isolated, but it it, it wasn't. It was influenced, it had its own culture, it had influences coming up from the South and from the East. And it was a rich, thriving thing, but because it's a uh, moist environment and not arid, we don't have as much material remains. So we have to turn a lot to stories also to kind of reconstruct what was going on there in those days.
0: One thing that I found interesting from the book was the when you touched on the Tuatha de de Danan. I think I said that right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I don't speak Gaelic, so I couldn't tell you. (laughs) I think Tuatha de Danan, someone will tell us we're wrong. (laughs)
0: for sure i won't be the first word that i mispronounce in this interview by any stretch but they also were known as the tribe of the danu and they they kind of like this word or this root word seems to show up all over the ancient world as you detail in the book from the greek danai to the goddess danu in the rig veda do you know Mm -hmm. more about like what what can you tell us about the uh, these ancient ancestors and how tracking these linguistic roots can show us the commonality between what seem to be distant people from the past?
1: Well, yeah, that root Dan it comes up. You're right from everywhere from Ireland possibly to the to the rig yeah to the Rigveda because you have the Indo-European languages stretch from India, parts of Central Asia through Turkey into all of Europe, except for certain certain special pockets. And this root Dan, which means to flow, you find it in river names like the Danube or the Donau, the Dnister, the Dnieper, and then in this Tawaha de Danan, which may mean tribe of Danu. Danu may have been a goddess. We're not sure because that's kind of the only reference to her, but there seems to have been a, there was a goddess in the Rig Veda also, so that's early... Indo-European language. And Homer talks about the Danae who were a roaming sea people around the time of the Trojan War. Uh, There were a lot of roaming sea people shortly before the Trojan War. Um, There was a lot of climatic unrest, a lot of people roving around, and they may have been an amalgam of different tribes. You know, hey, let's band together, let's do a little trading, do a little raiding. And they got around. And I like to think that they got as far north. Certainly, their influence would have gotten as far north, but that some of them may have actually, you know, climbed on that last long boat that's going up into the Jutland Peninsula, into the Baltic and the North Sea, because we have the name of the country Denmark, which, of course, in the Bronze Age, nobody would have heard of Denmark. There's a couple possible etymologies for Denmark. The mark part Uh, is related to our word march, meaning a boundary. So, But where does the den come from? In Denmark, in Danish, it's Danmark.
0: There's also King Dan.
1: That's one story who's actually Swedish. (laughs) There's a lot of give and take between Germany, Denmark, Sweden, southern Norway. In fact, the neighborhood in northern Germany where my aunt and uncle live, which is on the Baltic, it's a five-minute walk from the beach, the name of their area is called Danish Nienhof, which means new, new Danish farm or Danish estate. And the larger area is called Schwedenneck, which means Swedish corner, <laughs> but it's in Germany. So for thousands of years, this the cultural sphere has just gone back and forth regardless of national boundaries. So there could have been a, a Swedish King Dan took over the area that's now known as Denmark but that there's also the theory that it could be a people called Danu or Danoi who who moved in there and maybe set themselves up as elites because they had good stuff from southeastern Europe. They had metalworking. They had cool ships that could travel all the rivers and maybe go on the sea for a little ways. And so, so the important thing is to know that Denmark, Northern Germany, Southern Sweden was not a cultural backwater, even in 1500 BC. They were part of the, the larger world culturally and probably linguistically too.
0: So do you think we're looking at a more widespread, not single culture, but group of cultures that are linked during this golden age era around 1200, 1500 BC? Or do you think it's more like these are several peoples that share a common ancestry that did run into each other sometimes. And do you think that this golden age culture has anything to do with where we get these stories of either the ancient gods or, you know, elves and, and these types of uh, beings?
1: I think to both questions, the answer is a little of everything. When you look at Europe, you know, it's never been just one people in Europe, even when the first people moved into Europe from Africa there were already people there from Neander- Neanderthals the already there who'd come from Africa earlier. You have constant flow into and through it. So you have all these these waves, and even before the Bronze Age, there would have been multiple waves. In the Neolithic, there's farmers coming in from the Middle East, and they would have mixed with the hunter-gatherers. And that could be one source of elves, because they've been Looking at each other and thinking, "Who's who? Are those guys over there? They're not like us, and yet they are like us because uh, eventually they got together and started having kids." But we don't know how long it took. We don't know what the first encounters might have been like. I would imagine usually these relationships start with silent trading. You know, somebody has something that the native group wants, and the native group has something. You know, that they each want from the other, and you, know, you put the things down on the riverbank and. See what the other person has to offer, but they would have looked different to each other—physically different. They would have had different customs, and then then later, once once they blended, you would have had uh, more horsey people coming in again from Central Asia, bringing more languages, and we would have done the whole thing again. And so I think off. I I like the idea that elves started as you know some tribe up in the hills. The people weren't sure, like, are they even human? They're so primitive. That's one theory. But also everybody has their elves. Even in, in Australia, there's there's Aboriginal Australian tales about other people already in the landscape, maybe small, maybe with supernatural powers. Cause I think we we don't want to think that we're alone. For most of human history, we were not the only humans on the planet. There were other kinds of humans. This is the first time, you know. It's only quite recently that we find ourselves the only humans. There's no Neanderthals left, other than what we have, what most of us have uh, have absorbed in our DNA. There's no Homo erectus. There's no more, you know, Lucy's hobbits in Indonesia or Lucy in Africa. And almost like like we have to create imaginary playmates for ourselves. (laughs) There always has to. We have to believe that there's somebody else living side by side, and elves worked for a long time. You know, for even 100, 200 years ago, people firmly believed that, yeah, those are elves in the hills. If there's a, a cow missing, the elves took it. If a girl gets pregnant while she was watching the cows, well, it was an elf man, there was nothing I could do. <laughs> it can be helpful to believe in the elves. But now we're more scientific. Now we like a little more proof. We like a little more rationality. And I think that Bigfoot and Yeti and alien encounters have largely taken the place of the elves in our culture.
0: I agree. It does seem like that, that there's always going to be some sort of stories of the other. And I think you used as an example in your book that when that milkmaid comes, comes back pregnant, even though she doesn't have a husband, and she says it was an elf perhaps it could have been a passing nobleman who, you know, was really adorned with amazing things because he's so wealthy and he looked practically like a different type of person compared to the peasants. And also he's not going to claim that bastard child because it was just a little roll in the hay.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was just roll in the hay. He, He can't, he can't be bothered. And I mean, if you think of, you know, think like even back to Downton Abbey times, there was a big difference between the people in the kitchen and the people upstairs. And if you dial that back to an even harder time, you had fewer people getting enough to eat and you had more people not getting enough to eat and not getting enough to eat for generations. Uh, So so the upper class would have looked different from the lower class. They would have been taller because they're getting more to eat and you know they and they had the nice clothes but the bronze age i i like to trace the origins of the elf image as this tall glittering creature to the bronze age because that was the first time that the upper class has bling and the lower class doesn't before that you know you'd have more to eat if you were upper class in the in the neolithic age but you wouldn't have anything shiny cuz there just wasn't anything shiny maybe some mica that was it but you're just you know, wood and stone and bone. And then when we get metalworking, you've got brooches and a sword and a ring, and, uh, and it really marks you out as being different. And you might even have you might even be speaking a different language, especially because you could have come from an ethnicity that, that came in and dominated, or just the sort of like caste system, like I, I love the charcoal burners. They were super important to the Bronze Age. The Bronze Age would not have been possible without them. You cannot work metal without charcoal. You had to know how to make it. It was probably you know just certain families over generations. The knowledge was passed down on how to make charcoal. You got to be in the woods all the time because you have to watch the kiln, make sure it's getting enough air, not too much air. Watch the color of the smoke. So you're not mixing with the rest of society, and you probably have your own lingo, your own jargon, and. So they probably, if you take a Bronze Age prince and you take a Bronze Age charcoal burner, they're gonna look like they're two completely different kinds of beings.
0: Yeah, the charcoal burners are gonna be covered in suet and look dark, and I believe you linked this to the concept in Norse mythology of the dark elves. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I. It's, I that's one of my pet theories because um, Snorri Sturluson was a medieval Icelander who tried to gather together information for poets, because people would use these terms in poetry and people were losing what was the story behind it. Where did these expressions come from? And so he gathered as many stories as he could. And he was the first one to really catalog the elves into dark elves and light elves. And the um, chapter on dwarves, because the dwarves, there's really, it's a, there's a fine line at best between the dwarves and the elves. The dwarves make things but they have a really bad reputation. They're not, they're not looked on too kindly. And the black elves also, you know, they're described as swarthy, and the light elves are, you know, radiant and beautiful. So, yeah, Snorri doesn't actually say that the dark elves are charcoal, and I don't know if that occurred to him because he was in Iceland where you don't have forests, so you don't have charcoal burners. You're going to have to be getting your, your metalwork from overseas. But that's my pet that's my own pet theory that the dark hills could be the charcoal burners.
0: Yeah, I like that theory. I think that's a pretty interesting one. And we definitely haven't lost our interest in elves, but it's become almost invisible because it's so ubiquitous these days. Like I just got gas at a gas station earlier today on a road called Elfindale Road. (laughs) Oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah, but there's nothing special about the road. It's just like a short little street with a gas station and some apartments on it. But but it's literally everywhere, like practically unnoticeable. One of my favorite stories, I mean, to get into some other types of creatures, one of my favorite stories in the book was the Spamadour. I hope that's how you say it. The
1: Spamother.
0: Okay, because there's a letter in there that's not an English letter.
1: That's an F. So it's like the T-H in there.
0: And this is like also known as the hearth man. What were yeah. these guys and what were some of their powers or how did they help the, the peasants of the ancient times?
1: Yeah, he was a little bit like the NIS that in Sweden, and Denmark they give porridge to the NIS on Christmas Eve. He's the spirit that haunts the the farmstead. And uh, he appears like what we think of as a, you know, he looks a lot like a garden gnome. But this the story of the spa mother, that was back in... You know, early medieval times in Iceland, just when Iceland was becoming Christian. So he was, because this is Iceland, Iceland is a kind of tricky era because if it's, if we're in Old World Scandinavia, we can say that these are ancestral spirits. But in Iceland, unless you brought them with you, which doesn't seem to have been the case much, there were no ancestral spirits. You had Irish monks moved through, Native Americans would come and hunt, Inuit would come and hunt and then move on. But the Icelanders, the the Norwegians, and, you know, a lot of the Irish slaves, they were the first to actually settle there. So you didn't, any elf mounds that they talk about are not actually grave mounds yet. They are just bumps in the landscape. So this, in this story where the farmer You know, feels loyalty to his father, who is the spirit of the farmstead, who counsels him, who helps him look after the the livestock. Is he an ancestral spirit that came along from the old country, or is he some kind of primordial spirit, a spirit of the landscape? Because we know that the the first Vikings to come to Iceland did believe that that it was inhabited by spirits, because they had uh, this practice. They would, you know, the the dragon prows on the Viking ships, they're supposed to, the dragon heads that are supposed to look scary, you know, as a dragon, as the as Viking boat comes in, they would unscrew those as they came within sight of Iceland because they didn't want to scare the indigenous spirits.
0: <laughs> I like that. And I like that a lot. And uh, Spamma, say that one more time Spamma. Uh,
1: I think it's Spamma, Mother. it could be Spamather. mother. Yes. They
0: mother. What I like about this is it seems like he didn't just offer advice to the character that you describe his story in the book who had a relationship with one of these things. He literally rendered physical aid, like you said, taking care of the livestock. I remember a video game I played as a kid called Harvest Moon, which was about just like making a farm basically. And it was like a farm life simulation game. It's actually really, weirdly fun. But one of the lesser known things that you could accomplish in that game was that if you made a relationship with these little gnome guys that you could find hidden somewhere off near the farm, that they would come, they would help you like water your plants and stuff whenever you had a big farm to run. So I love it. It's interesting that these creatures seem like they're just stories, but to the it, individuals of the past that had these relationships relationships with them, they were actually doing things in the world. According, like, Because I don't know why you would want to give credit to somebody else for doing your work for you unless they really were. But interesting thing about this guy is that you could contact him in dreams as well and leave sacrifices and offerings to him
1: yeah the the farmsteader would they would communicate in dreams i don't know if he actually i don't think he actually saw him during the day but in dreams he would come to him and they could have conversations and he would give him advice and i find the story it's it's funny in some ways and it's it's really sad to me too because it's Catherine's sons become a christian and he comes with the priest to convert his father and the father first says oh i can't because then i couldn't Make keep my relationship with my spa mother, so I cannot become a Christian. And of course, holy water on the stone, and the spa and and his his family, his children, are driven out, even though he he begs the farmer, you know, could you please call off the priest? my my kids are being scalded by holy water, but he doesn't and and he converts, and the spay mother moves as as these spirits in Iceland, they move around a lot in. Back in the old world, they pretty much they they stick in one place. But in Iceland, the elves are always in the move.
0: Yeah. The fact that this guy, this my mother guy lived in a rock with his family, it almost reminds me of like a magic lamp that these spiritual entities can inhabit physical objects, even though you can't like crack open the rock and see it in there. It's almost yeah. as if they exist in another dimension that is parallel or overlapping. Onto ours, but you know the same could be said about how people experience ETs and abductions and things like that in this day. Do you think that our beliefs have a really big influence on what we see and interact with in the waking world?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Because so often we see what we expect to see, you know, and our culture conditions us for what we're going to see before we even walk out the door. And, you know, if you know, Oh, you know, so-and-so got knocked up by an elf in those woods over there. So be careful when you're walking through, um, that's, you're already preconditioned to, you know, to see a, a hill man or, you know, some kind of Randy elf man when you're walking through the woods. If you're, you know, that, that, that tree stump that you've, see out of the corner of your eye and then you run and then you go home and you tell somebody, I saw that, that elf man in the woods, then that person is more likely to see it. And in our culture, you know, depending on where you live, anything unexplained is more likely to be, you know, possibly a Bigfoot or, or an extraterrestrial. So, yeah, I think we all have every, every generation has, has the stories to explain what they can't explain, or even to let them give us expectations of what we might see.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And even in the modern age, there's some places where there's still a reverence for elves and fairies, like modern Iceland. As I understand it, they actually consult or do some sort of uh, asking of permission before they construct roads and stuff. Is that true?
1: Yeah, they'll like they'll go around the boulders instead of. Moving it, um, you know, there are like certain professional people who might consult and say, "Hey, elves, uh, do you? Is it okay if we move the rock, or no, you'd like to stay there?" Okay, we'll keep it there. Um, there's, you know, like tons of videos you can watch on YouTube about about this kind of thing. But they take, yeah, they do take it much more seriously. It's considered a fact of life. I, I think part of that comes from because the Icelanders are so recently arrived in that land. I think that they know. Maybe they're not 100% comfortable there yet, so they know to defer to, because maybe it's just too frightening to think that you are coming into a, an empty land, because there's a lot of stories in Newfoundland, too, um, where you have Irish and English immigrants coming into an empty, empty woodland. A lot of cool fairy stories from there, and there's, a lot of them are spooky, in Iceland, it's not so much spooky um sometimes it's an inconvenience. There's a lot of borrowing on the part of the elves. Just to think that we're not coming into an empty landscape, there's somebody already here that we can have a relationship with. Would it be really interesting that if we settle on Mars or another planet someday, what happens there? I'd love to be able to live long enough to find out what kind of stories might come out of that.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm really interested in what are the like perceived consequences of not honoring these beings as well, uh, according to the Icelanders and in the ancient folklore. What kind of troubles might arise from not paying the elves their due?
1: Well, uh, once the Iceland when they, they were still pagan, I think they were paying tribute to them once they became Christian that wasn't okay anymore. You're not supposed to, you know, leave out offerings for elemental beings, but they still adhere to certain rules when dealing with them. They never, you know, here, we, you never had elf hunters. Like here, you know, we have Bigfoot hunters and, and like I read, a, I read recently, there's just one county, I think in Washington state, where it's actually illegal to shoot a Sasquatch. It's the only one that has a law, just the fact that we would need a law like that, whether or not they exist. But in Iceland and the other countries, there nobody was out hunting them. It was understood that they would pass through the farmstead, and you had to know how to deal with them so that they couldn't cause you harm. and usually it it meant uh, keeping your head down, not engaging, letting them pass, and and then you'd be okay.
0: It okay, reminds me of Frodo and Sam in the theatrical movie of The Fellowship of the Ring, seeing the elves walk by. But what's more fun is in the actual book, The Fellowship of the Ring, instead of just watching the elves at the beginning of the story, passing through the forest on their way to the West and just witnessing it, but not interacting with them. In the book, they go and they get, they have like a a party with these elves basically. And they even end up being Uh put, put to bed on like plants that are grown in the shape of, Little beds for small hobbit people. <laughs> I think it's so cool. For,
1: for, for, for your hobbit guests. <laughs> but then the episode in The Hobbit where they're, they're lost in the woods and they see elves feasting in the distance and they go toward them. And as soon as they get them, the whole candlelit table disappears and then it appears somewhere else. That's a, that's a creepier elf. That's an elf. You know, having fun with them—that scene really captivated me because it's—you know—they're right there, but then they're not there, and they're and they're teasing the hobbits. Yeah, so they have they have the power to cause trouble too.
0: And sometimes the mischief is just for fun. It seems like, but we talked about how when Christianity crept in, a lot of this folklore was not extinguished, I guess, but it was made taboo in a way. But isn't it true that priests in the past would actually have to go in to to ask permission before mining operations just to keep like goblins from causing problems and things like that?
1: Yeah, I haven't heard that myself, but that sounds that sounds very um, sensible. Yeah. The funny thing is that when when Scandinavia became Christian. The elves were regarded as still pagan. And then when Scandinavia went Protestant, then the Rs were was regarded as still Catholic and they would still <laughs> go to their Catholic Mass on on Christmas Eve in certain rocks and you weren't supposed to disturb them. <laughs> so the elves are always there always a couple of beats behind, which would lend, you know, that's kind of evidence that they're they're also the dead. You know, there are ancestors, they're not doing things the, the way we are, but that, you know, they do get update every so often, but they are always a couple beats behind us. Soon, I think the elves will be hippies.
0: <laughs> that's interesting. The, actually, that's a good link to start pulling on, which is the idea that the elves or these type of beings are actually ancestral spirits that are being interacted with because just about every culture does have, at least indigenous cultures, have some sort of what they see as a real and visceral connection and relationship with ancestors. And even linking into modern UFO lore and extraterrestrial stories, there seems to be a lot of those that talk about reincarnation and talk about like the sort of the veil between life and death as being a part of what is being experienced by the abductees. So that's a, that's a very interesting thing to consider too, that, we could possibly be actually interacting with ghostly spirits, or maybe it's something in our DNA, like genetic atavistic memory that is being tapped into. I wanted to know your more of your thoughts about this idea of the elves possibly being ancestor spirits or ghostly. Or if you think it's possible that we're looking at genetic DNA atavistic memory that's just Literally encoded inside of us, and so we experience it in some way in the external world or in our imaginations because it's always been a part of us. It's where we came from.
1: I don't know. Well, that sounds like all kinds of fun, but I don't know. With my you know my twin first century mind, if I believe that, I think you know, like we don't want to. You know, we we don't like to let go of our dead. We like to remember them. You know, with Bronze Age, they would have. It seems older cultures have more of an ambivalent thought of the dead. I mean, with us, you know, somebody dies, you tend to only have the good memories of them. Like, uh, my father recently died at age 90, and I feel much closer to him now than I did probably in the last 20 years of his life. Because it would be, you know, he, the last 20 years meant, um, Making sure he was eating, taking care of him, going to visit him—you know—at the assisted living place. In the end, and that kind of got in the way of all the all the good. And and then I resent it and think of all the bad memories. And then as soon as he died, I'm remembering the good memories because that stuff is not in the way anymore. So, so we our dead are pretty good. We seem to hold our, you know, have a real affection for dead. But in older cultures, the dead could also be dangerous. It seems the the more, the stronger belief that a culture has in ghosts, the stronger is the idea that they can be harmful. Even if it's if it's a child who's coming back to the parents, there's a recognition that 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 should not be. They shouldn't still be among the living. You have to keep the dead happy with offerings but you also have to keep them at a distance. And if you can keep them happy at a distance, then they can bless the living, they can provide, you know, make, make sure the crops are, are good and that the family prospers. Yeah, now I think I think that that's why they had more rituals around death. Pretty much all we have, we have left is the wearing of black, which today we think of as, it's to show that we're sad. But, but originally it was because in, in Europe, in medieval Europe, it was believed that spirits couldn't couldn't see you if you were dressed in black. So that was to prevent the, the 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 deceased from following the mourning family home. It was to protect it was protect the living from the dead.
0: Oh, that's really interesting, because it seems like there are stories of, sort of like spirit possession or spirit harassment from spirits of the dead. I mean, that's what kind of ghost stories tend to be.
1: And it's the, recent, the more recent dead. Ghost, it seems, ghosts are the more recent dead, the ghost you know, and elves are more those ancestors that we don't even remember their names anymore, but we recognize that they have a connection to us.
0: And then also on this subject, there's the stories of like the Draugr and these almost like zombie warriors that would mm-hmm. <laughs> possibly inhabit mounds. Can you tell us about those guys?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm disappointed that that the part of Germany that my mom grew up in, they don't seem to have a lot of good ghost stories. And I finally figured out that it's cuz instead of having ghosts, they had more uh, the revenant, which is the actual physical physical person who comes up out of the grave. And uh, Iceland had a lot of those, you know, restless dead, you know, there's there's in one saga I can't remember which one it was. There's a guy and he's terrorizing the settlement. He's dead, but he's up and running around and he's terrorizing the settlement. He wasn't a nice guy while he was alive and they, they got him out all over again. There's a story in, in the elf book about a, a mother who she comes back carrying her coffin on her back because the stepmother is mistreating her children. Um, so she's a very well-intentioned revenant, but still creepy. You know, mom walking in the house with her coffin on her back. To tell off the stepmother yeah and the the male it was often believed that there was and, and often there, there was I mean the mound was there because there was a dead body inside and warriors especially in in one case a woman in one of the sagas, uh, she goes to her father's grave mound but other warriors would go to consult not just dead ancestors, but you know, dead brothers and cousins, or maybe, hey, could I have that sword that they buried with you? And the the drog, as as he's called, they usually they don't want to be bothered, and the the living person who comes knocking on their mound has to kind of beg and plead, could you please give me some advice? Could you give me a sword? I need some help. And usually the drog is, oh, just leave me alone. And they're actually they have kind of some comic value because they're so reluctant to speak to the living, to to be disturbed, to give them what they want. So, yeah, and and to make it even more confusing, a lot of the earlier translations of the Icelandic sagas would translate Drog to ghost. So you think, when you read the English version, you think it, this is a ghost, but no, it's actually the animated corpse that, that they're interacting with.
0: Which is really interesting. It almost connects to the way pharaohs are buried and kept preserved in there in the egyptian history too like that they're doing such a good job with these tombs that the person buried there can just live there eternally i guess and then when you go to tolkien again this isn't in the movie but in the book fellowship of the ring the four hobbits on their their journey through the first scary forest that they have to go through do actually wind up in a burial mound tomb type chamber and have an encounter with a being like this but it's quite a bit scarier and they all end up with really nice swords after it
1: <laughs> I don't re- I don't remember that part which part is that It is I- before they I'm meet still-
0: I think it's before they meet Tom Bombadil in... Oh God, Tom Bombadil. Yeah. That's a character <laughs> and a half. I mean, there's so much in the movies that it, they had to leave out to fit into one movie. And it's really, really worth reading.
1: Tom Bombadil is not movie ready. <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's too... Tom Bombadil's too woke for the movie.
1: Just,
0: <laughs> the way I understood that character in The Fellowship of the Ring is that maybe if you look at... One concept that you brought up in the book is that the ancients might have looked at the various gods of a particular pantheon as being just different faces of one supreme being. And that as the supreme single consciousness or god of the entire universe divides itself and steps down its energy into multiple forms to create, I guess, the interesting variety of things that we experience in the physical waking reality, that these subdivisions get more and more, I guess, weaker as you go. The same concept is in Tolkien in the Silmarillion as well, because he has the one uh, creator God. And then there's like the first race of gods that are created. And then you get into the Maya or the Mayar, which are like the servants of the first gods. And then I think the elves come after that and then humans come after that. And so the further you step away from the single source, the more multiplicity is in that group of beings and the weaker and less connected they are to the ultimate truth or the single consciousness of the universe, you could say. And Tom Bombadil, to me, to get back to him, he's, if you haven't read The Fellowship of the Ring, he's this really...
1: No, I have, I have but it's a well, while. So the, back.
0: Well, for the audience, I mean, he's a character oh, okay. that is like uh, almost... Definitely godlike in his ability to command nature, and he does everything through singing. And he he he's saves the hobbits. Much. Yeah, he's too powerful. <laughs> <laughs> he's very, very powerful character. Really interesting character too. One of the most, one of the biggest things left out of the book, out of the movie from the books that I think makes it worth reading just to check that out.
1: And I, I have to admit, I have okay. I made two valiant efforts to read the similar um, My daughter gave it to me. My birthday a few years ago, and it's on my shelf, but now he actually, after the Hobbit, Tolkien trotted into his publisher with the Cimmerillion, and they said no, <laughs> and I'm inclined to inclined to agree with them because yeah, I, like that was you know he was putting down his universe for himself, but I much prefer it distilled through the Lord of the Rings, rather than all in one shot in the Cimmerillion. Um, right. And I kind of like. I don't like. I don't like it when actual gods appear in fantasy. I don't, I don't like gods. I've always had problem with gods. It's like, are you human or you're not? You know, like, okay, Zeus, you're running around, you're cheating on your wife, you're acting very human, and yet you're a god. So we have to give you tribute. You know why? What's the deal? There, there's a theory that elves are diminished gods. You know, first they were they were gods, and they had you know full on worship. Then Christianity came, and so they were demoted to to being elves, to being little people. But I'm inclined to think that the elves came first. The Norse gods were divided into the Easier, who were sky gods, roughly more or less, and the Vanir, who were chthonic gods. You know, gods of earth and death and and fertility, kind of sort of more or less. There's a lot of crossover, which is explained in Norse mythology as a, you know, hostage taking among the gods. So, you know, some Vanir were living with the easier and some easier living with the Vanir. The Vanir seemed to be the older group of gods because they were more agricultural. They were very tied to the land. And then possibly uh, the easier like Odin and Tor came in with the horsemen from Central Asia later on. But so I, I associate the Vanyar with actually elves. I think that they were elves before they were gods. That that elves were held in higher regard than they would be after Christianity. But I think they, I think the people would have had a more intimate relationship with them than they did with the gods, because you know humans are creative. But if you want to explain things. You know, explain what the crops are doing or not doing and what the weather is doing. Would you, would you create an extra, what would you do first? What, what would you reach for first? That there's this, these, these higher beings in, in the sky that are affecting it or, you know, could it be great aunt Hilda that, you know, we pissed off before she died and now she's buried over there we forgot to give her tribute last month. We better go pour out some pour out some fat and milk on her mound and that will make it better. I think I think you would reach for Great Aunt Hilda first because she's, she's closer. She's somebody that you knew and and then, you know, people would maybe have forgotten her name, but know that there's somebody in that mound and that's somebody that requires a little offering from time to time. It seems easier than maintaining, you know, bully that are are removed.
0: Right. And maybe the origin of the idea of these gods is something that actually was physically real to even more ancient people than we have records of or stories of. When you look linguistically at, the, at some certain words, there are very interesting links there to be discovered. Like elves could be etymologically related to the elves, E-L, or the Elohim which is a oh. strange pluralistic reference made in the old Testament to the Hebrew God in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And then the, the letter L L. is
1: plural. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. And they're the so, ones that yeah, created that? Adam and Eve.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then L itself is an interesting letter because it symbolizes, at least it seems to symbolize the axis mundi or the spine of the world, the vertical or spiritual um, plane as it intersects with the horizontal physical plane that we move around on. It's literally like this right angle, and in Judeo-Christian and many other traditions, the the earth was created through the word of God or the logos. And when you add L to word, you get world. <laughs> so,
1: oh, that's uh, cute, yeah,
0: yeah. So I mm-hmm. I think that it's possible that the concept of elves could have to do with progenitor races or the concept of the Nephilim from other mythologies or the, the sky people well, the known. were big
1: right they were were they giants
0: they were taller yeah so
1: when you go back in the elf family tree it kind of moves into the giants and when we think of giants we think of you know c.s lewis type of giants or or ents but the the giants north mythology they were a lot of them were considered to be beautiful um the uh, the Norse gods, especially Frey, he really had the hots for some giant women. And they were also, they had a lot of magical powers. And they may, may have had a hand in the creating of the world. That's in there too. Which, but I have to say, I am more, maybe because of the influence of, of Brother Clifton in World Religions 1 and 2 when I was in college. He was more of the, the Joseph Campbell school that you know there are these universal needs of humans and that's why we have these these things in our stories because they are they're fulfilling a need uh, you know an emotional desire to explain what's around us and I, that's why i think you know we we look to somebody else who was who was here before us maybe not maybe more powerful than us we everybody has a golden age because if there was a golden age once there could be a golden age again so for me, it's actually, I love all these stories. I love, I love stories of the Nephilim and elves, but it's, to me, the story is always more important than whether or not it's true, than whether or not it's real. I think a story can be true without having to be real.
0: I agree. I, I like to read mythology as if it's true and just see what comes out of that, but without needing to be attached to it being like objective truth, if that makes sense. I think, I, I think we're on the same page there.
1: <laughs> there's a scene in, I don't know if it was in the book because as I said, I was a poor reader as a teenager, but there's a scene in the, uh, the masterpiece theater version of Brideshead revisited where whatever Jeremy Irons character's name was says to Sebastian, who's Anglo Catholic says, how, how can you believe all this stuff? You know, virgin birth, baby Jesus, the ox and the ass. And, Sebastian says, because it's nice. And Jeremy Irons says, you can't believe something just because it's nice. I said, well, why not?
0: <laughs> right, right. Uh, and like we kind of already explored, the belief that you have could really influence what you think you're perceiving. But all around, I think my favorite way to explore this stuff is on the linguistic side.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a very languagey person. If I want to know something about someone, I you gotta learn language. There's all kinds of there's all kinds of stuff in there. Yeah, exactly. and just and knowing and and knowing your own language, diving into those etymologies, where do these words come from? There's there's all kind there's all kinds of like treasure there just by just opening, you know, like a a fat Webster's and looking at etymology.
0: My favorite thing about modern book reading is that on, uh, like on the Kindle app, you can highlight a word you don't know, and it will automatically tell you the definition of that word without you having to go look anything up. It's amazing. Yeah, but then
1: you won't remember if you don't see, I have, I do all my writing in the kitchen and um, my big Webster's Dictionary second edition, because I don't believe in the third, is in the bedroom. So that's my workout. I have to walk (laughs) from the kitchen to the bedroom. And then I have to remember what I read in the dictionary on my way back to the kitchen.
0: That's a good way to help yourself remember it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, I wanted to bring up another linguistic connection because I haven't read your book, Old Magic of Christmas, but I think maybe...
1: Oh, thank you. No, thank you. So thank you for saying that. Thank you so much for saying that because ever since the elf book came out, I've been pushing it on my Facebook. I've been pushing it on Instagram and I say, Hey, I have a new book out. And they say, great. I love the old magic of Christmas.
0: I re- I'm definitely going to check it out.
1: I'm happy that you have come straight to the elves. <laughs> I even, I even like, cause you can, uh, once a week, they update the sales rank on Amazon and, you know, I'm looking, okay, where does my elf book rank, you know, in, in categories. And I'm like, Ugh. Who am I up against? And I look, you know, I looked in the holiday books. Oh, it's me, Old Magic of Christmas. I'm number three, and I, like, I'm, I'm starting to get like bad feelings toward that book because it's doing, it's doing well, and my elves, my elves are not doing well.
0: <laughs> You're competing with yourself. At least that's good. Yeah,
1: yeah, and like I'm in the elves' corner right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, tell me, tell me what you think of this connection here. According to some researchers, ancient Semitic tribes worshipped. Saturn or whatever God's name they gave to Saturn under the name L actually as a Supreme deity. There's, you could even say that Saturn is the Lord of the rings because it's a planet with huge rings,
1: oh, but they didn't know that then.
0: No, they didn't, but they did know a lot of things that they shouldn't have known that uh, as far as astrology, astronomy and astrology goes. And also to the ancients, this is the farthest out planet Whose ring or orbit encompassed all the others, which is another reason why it might be the Lord of the ring.
1: Because they know, okay, they had the, the Hebrews had seven. They knew this, did they have the seven planets or was that including the sun? Because the.
0: They had seven and the, I think the sun was one of the planets, but.
1: So Menorah had seven branches.
0: Uh, yeah, th- uh, th- I'm not sure. Yeah,
1: Hanukkah has nine. Hanukkah has nine, This is what you light at Hanukkah, but your standard Menorah has seven, and I think it's for each planet, but that would not have counted the earth because they did not know that the earth was a planet.
0: Exactly. And, but Saturn was always a big deal in winter solstice traditions, like Saturnalia was at that time. Mm-hmm like I said I haven't read your old magic of christmas and I definitely plan to because I think from what I was reading about it it's probably got a lot of information on the winter solstice traditions kind of creepier sides
1: yeah but not much of not much in the way of rome not much in this just a little bit on saturnalia
0: but that's actually a connection in that the saturn is sort of like the the judge and the taskmaster Kronos, the lord of time and all that and Sort of the disciplinarian in a variety of mythologies, and then when we when you go look at Krampus or something like the Wild Hunt and other dark aspects of winter solstice traditions, you kind of see a big link there that it's you know if you're not good, then Krampus will kill you. <laughs>
1: No, he doesn't kill you. He'll just take you away. He'll just take you to hell.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you probably wish that he had just eviscerated you. I I think that's in the
1: movies. That's in the movies that he, the the movies the Krampus kills um, the kids. Yeah.
0: My family was watching that over the holidays and I was like, this is messed up, man.
1: (laughs) I have, if you want to see a good Christmas movie, I think it's Finnish. Uh, There's a movie called Rare Exports. That's a good one.
0: And that has to do
1: with the Krampus thing? No, not not Krampus. You know, it's, it's very original, but it, it's on the idea of, you know, the evil aspect of Santa Claus, the evil side of Santa Claus. And it's up in reindeer herding territory and there's, it's Christmas time and, you know, modern times. And there is something creepy going on in this small community. Uh, but it's actually rather touching in the end. I recommend it. Rare Exports.
0: Awesome. I'll make a link to that in the show notes for sure. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm fascinated by this stuff, but I think I've kept you a little past time and I got to start wrapping things up, but why don't you let people know about your three books and any other things you want to point them to Uh, give them a little description of, of all your works and let them know how they can connect with you online and find also find your books.
1: My three nonfiction books are on the Llewellyn site. I also wrote a little indie fantasy novella called The Princess and the Mound, and you can find that on Amazon. Just put in Linda Radish. I usually write at least one article for the Llewellyn annuals every year. I have something coming up in the Herbal Almanac, which comes out in July. So if they go to the Llewellyn site, they can click on my author page and see what's coming up there. You can always find me on Facebook. Facebook is kind of like for me to follow people and Instagram is for people to follow me. And uh, yeah, I'm always working on something. So that's me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very exciting. And the three books are. Oh, the uh, three books
1: are, what are the three books?
0: Night of the Witches.
1: Yeah. I have trouble remembering my own titles because I never get my first choice of title, (laughs) but it's Night of the Witches which is Folklore, Traditions, and Recipes for Celebrating Walpurgis Night. And my second book is The Old Magic of Christmas, Yuletide Traditions for the Darkest Days of the Year. And number three is The Lore of Old Elfland, Secrets from the Bronze Age to Middle-earth. The original title was Lights in the Forest, uh, but that turned out that we, we used, they didn't, my editor didn't like that. So that's actually one of the chapter titles.
0: As Gollum says to Frodo and Sam when they're crossing into Mordor, don't follow the lights. Follow
1: <laughs> uh, the lights. But sometimes you just you just got to follow
0: the lights. Yep, they got them everywhere. I mean, just near where I live, they have a thing called the spook light, which is just a, a weird light that people see off in the distance in this one area around here that's been there ever since humans have paid attention that we know of. So,
1: Oh, I like that
0: it's all around you guys explore your own area for the folklore and the funkiness that's out there because it's definitely this type of stuff is pervasive to all humans it's very fascinating and I loved getting to talk with you about it Linda I appreciate your time very much I hope people do check out your books if they are interested in learning more about any of these topics it's been great
1: yeah this has been fun this has been a lot of fun thank you
0: good people, humans, elves, dwarves, gnomes, whatever you might identify as, we've made it to the end of another episode and I'm really grateful that you did check it all out. So thank you so much for being here with us and big thanks to Linda Radish for giving us her time. It was a fun book. I really appreciate her publisher sending me a copy because I don't know if I would have caught on to this book's existence otherwise and it was a fun read. Doesn't take too long to get through either. And there are some neato crafts and things like creating your own candles. We didn't even talk about the craft part of the book very much, but you know, making candles from scratch, things like that, a variety of sort of Bronze Age type of European folk crafting, fun stuff. And I think even if you don't give a crap about crafting, there are. Lots of fun stories that are in the book that you can then go and find their original source material if you want more of those type of legends and myths. And there are so many reading one book about them doesn't really do the topic justice, because like if you look at the total compilation collection of Grimm's fairy tales, for example, it's huge. There are so many stories that are just in that one compilation from that one sort of region of folklore. So folklore is an infinite topic. I guess what we do today with TV shows and movies would be considered our version of folklore, maybe, because I guess the difference would be that we're telling these as fictional stories and maybe not all of the people that were telling folklore tales were actually considering it fiction when when they were telling those stories. And there was one question that I wanted to ask Linda that I never got to. I kind of hinted that we were going to talk about this in my introduction. And then sadly, I kind of dropped the ball and asked other questions and left this one hanging. But I thought maybe I could answer it for us and at least give my take on it. What does it mean for humanity to be so inundated with fiction, yet quite separated from our ancestral folklore roots? At the very least, we might not be separated because, you know, those archetypes exist in the modern fiction, but we don't really have this sort of cultural meaning attached to it, folk meaning, or like morality that is something that's tying a group of people together in a way. And it seems <laughs> that even though major movies and popular stories are drawing on tales from long ago, most people don't really know the original stories anymore, or have any context for how the legends came down to us. And... It's just worth pointing out that we now look at these type of archetypical stories as being completely fictional. But there's a lot in myth that ends up having grains of truth, kernels of truth in there. So my, my personal way of looking at mythology is that I just take it as true but not real. Or real, but not true. I don't know which is better, <laughs> but that in some way they're telling something that really happened, but maybe it's, you know, not literal, but what is and isn't literal about it is pretty hard to know. The fact that there are so many common things and themes between folklore of various parts of the world does make it look like we've got some sort of predecessor civilization that was worldwide or that these ideas live inside of us in some way and they're just waiting to come out and it doesn't matter who you are or what your culture is that the archetypes exist within you or a little bit of both but either way i would have liked to have asked her that question what's it mean for us to be you know separated from the the roots of these stories but still swimming in the waters of this type of mythology without really knowing the source of it and of course we don't know the ultimate source of even the oldest mythologies that we have there many stories that we consider old now could have been really really old already in the time period in which they were first written down that we have had it handed down to us from so lots of interesting stuff to rattle around in the old brain cage but wanted to point out that if you were not with us in the plus extension, you did miss a whole bunch of really, really good expanding on this stuff that we started out talking about. The plus membership can be accessed at patreon.com forward slash interverse, where all you got to do is sign up for $5 a month and you've got the whole archive of plus episodes available to you and every new plus episode that I put out. So, Consider supporting a show that you like and getting twice as much of the thing that you like, which is the conversation with the interesting people. And in this plus extension, like I said, it was capital I interesting, at least for this guy. (laughs) And hopefully this episode wasn't too out of left field for the normal subject matter of this show. But does this show have a normal subject matter? I don't really think so but maybe i'm wrong about that maybe this is out of out of the blue to be talking about elves and folklore and mythology but i've been trying to drive us this direction for a little while and i think we will spend more time in these fun areas in the future as i can find the appropriate people to talk to me about it but okay plus extension this time we talked about the legend of the wild hunt which is basically like an undead cavalry that also may be related to elves or maybe the spirits of the dead. And we got to get more into that legend than just touching on it like we did in last episode's plus extension. So that was fun, and it spiraled us into a conversation about how elf and fairy encounters are similar to UFO abductions and near-death experiences. And from there, we went into Tolkien's writings Creating from a Trance State, Runes, Finnish Epics, The Elvish Languages, The Legacy of J.R.R. Tolkien's Son, the recently deceased Christopher Tolkien, Epic Fantasy Novels We Love, Introduce Some New Rare Words for Your Vocabulary, We Go Into The Amazing Legend of The Green Children of Woolpit, which might even have been true, And I don't want to spoil that story for you. If you go listen to the plus extension, you'll get it or just look up the green children of Woolpit and then you'll be quite amazed at that one. It's really weird. And then we got into liminal spaces and theories about portals to the fairy zone, whether it's off planet or in our planet, like inside the planet, inner earth style. And we explore some theories about, well, this was kind of more my theory, but we really explored the idea that the little people may have evolved into a creepier form of humanoid by being driven underground. So lots of stuff about the underground and the liminal spaces, more about that. And then talked a little bit about ancient ruins that seem to be sized for little people and fossils of hobbit-sized individuals, and got into talking about the giants or uh, the literal real-life Denisovan proto-human hybrid type peoples who could survive in cold and high altitudes, like really cold, really high altitudes. And so I gave you a lot of the details about the plus extension, but there was more than that, of course. If any of that sounds interesting, you ought to get on it. And one thing I would have liked to talk to Linda more about at the end of the plus extension is the idea that kind of just popped into my head when I was going through an editing That the Denisovans, which are, like I said, proto-humans that were huge, like eight plus feet tall, potentially, giants compared to small homo sapiens of the past that maybe were like five feet tall, maybe six foot max, right? Just like today. So eight plus feet tall guys that could live easily in really high places with really cold temperatures. Could they be the ice giants like the Jotunheim part of Norse mythology is that possible and I believe the ice giants were supposed to have been quite magically inclined and Loki got a lot of his tricks the the trickster god Loki in Norse mythology got a lot of his magic and sorcery from his lineage as being part ice giant so I've never heard anyone throw out this idea before but maybe the Denisovans in the ancient 30,000-year-ago range, we're actually interacting with Homo sapiens of that region that later developed into the Bronze Age peoples that created these stories. And maybe those memories of the Denisovans are where we get the idea of ice giants. I don't know. But that's something I just, I mean, I'm probably not the first person to put two and two together like that. But I've never heard anybody put those two things together. So kind of cool. I would have liked to have made this episode go a little longer in the plus extension. It did get cut slightly short. That's because we had some sound issues and some connectivity issues when we're getting this podcast going. It's just the breaks of uh, doing a show remotely, but in the future, I might try if I see this type of thing developing again, I might try a different way of getting connected to see if we can have a better time of it. So I'll get better at having a backup plan in the future. I'll learn from it. And sorry about any sound quality problems that you might have experienced while you're listening to this chat on Linda's side. Definitely not her fault. uh, It's just an internet thing that was going on. And also, I think that I could understand what she was saying as I was listening back and editing. So you probably can too. I probably didn't even need to bring it up, but hey, I already did. So there it is. Anyway, hope you liked this conversation about elves and all the related topics. I really did, and I I think that most of the things we talked about we just looked at in brief and really needed uh, to unpack some of these ideas. You need practically an entire episode on just one thing. But overall, my favorite thing that we talked about, I think, was the Spamather or Spamather. <laughs> I had trouble pronouncing that when we were talking about it. But it was this cool little house spirit. I guess he like, lived in a rock outside of the guy's house in this particular legend that was in her book that she detailed. But this class of creature, they're like these almost non-physical beings that live in in places in nature, like a rock in your property or something, and they somehow help you out and give you advice in your dreams and maybe even take care of your livestock on days where it's difficult to get it all done. Pretty amazing. And, you know, whether or not there is a reality to that type of thing, I do think our ancestors had to have had some sort of closer communion with nature, the consciousness of nature, because they lived closer to it. We really separate ourselves from it. We put a wall up. So we don't put four walls up, actually call it a house. And back then people were making their house out of stuff like dirt and mud. And it was like, they're still living in the earth. It wasn't all this artificial material and synthetic stuff. So like there could have been quite a bit more close connection to spirits of the land and We don't really know everything there is to know about how nature exhibits the intelligence that it does. And there could be a lot more than meets the eye when it comes to this idea of panpsychism that we're going to get into in the next week's episode quite deeply, that there's consciousness in everything. Everything is consciousness. It's not that consciousness is in it, but it is consciousness, which means that Everything has some level of reciprocal communication that you can do with it. Like all external otherness is what helps you learn more about yourself and maybe even helps you grow as a self. Anyway, love this idea. Love the non-human, humanoid thing. And whether it's aliens or fairies, I like it more in the folklore sense than in the sci-fi sense to have these type of beings. Although in both cases, they are both good and bad. You run into ones that will keep you trapped in their realm for (laughs) decades. You come back like Rip Van Winkle and feel like you were only gone for a few days and it's been decades. And then there's the ones that maybe just uh, show you a fun dinner party and send you on your way. (laughs) in modern times the UFO alien abduction thing is more creepy than nice but I don't know I guess there are a lot of stories people have told in several decades past recent decades that there are good ETs or good UFO knots that are just here to help us or at least not interested in messing with us other than Just I guess the occasional abduction, (laughs) fly on the flag saucer. Anyway, I think I'm done. I think I'm out of here. It's been fun. I really enjoyed this one. I do recommend that you get into the show notes and check out Linda's books that you can find linked there. The Old Magic of Christmas, and I'm definitely planning on reading that one next. Uh, The Night of the Witches. That's the second one, I believe, and then the third one. Of course, the one we just talked about, The Lore of Old Elfland. So you can find all those on Amazon or at the Llewellyn author page for Linda Radish. And go follow her on social media. Tell her thanks for being on the show, that you liked seeing her. That always helps. And if you want to uh, make sure you're signed up to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player, in case this is your first time listening to an Interverse episode, Definitely go find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or Spotify or YouTube or whatever it is that's your favorite way to listen to this type of content because I got it there. And that that's it. I'm out of here. You guys have an awesome rest of your life if I never talk to you again. Or I'll see you in about a week with a deep, deep philosophical chat. <laughs> but really, we're talking to the philosophy guy next week. If you've ever heard of that podcast, getting into some really staggering consciousness topics. I already had the conversation. I just got to get it out to you. So stay tuned for next week. Fun stuff coming. And yeah, bye-bye. Love you all.